very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fambergas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And tonight we discuss Chapter 2 of the three-part series, Six Hours, with David Adair and his technology. Next month, we present Chapter 3. Only the first segment of Chapter 1 is available to the public, so Chapter 2 and 3 are exclusive to you, Veritas member. If at any time in the future the first part of these chapters becomes available to the public, then you know what to do. Just go to the subscribe button of our website at VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. That way you'll be able to listen to all of it and all of our material. And if you want to get in touch with me, have a guest suggestion, want to be a guest on this radio program, or simply have feedback, I always love to hear from you. Go to the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And tonight we continue with Chapter 2, The Life and Technology of David Adair. And that's No rivets, no screws. That, oh, that's, yeah, that's the point I made about something. That got him upset. I told him, listen, guys, um, I guess you want me to look at this thing. It looks to me like it's some type of an electromagnetic engine, but it is so sophisticated. Let's start by the, by nuts and bolts, okay? How do we hold this together? Yeah. The thing doesn't have a nut, bolt, rivet, weld seam, nothing. It looked like an eggplant, like it grew. And I'm going, how did you guys do that? Well, my questions was not, <laughs> not making them very happy. And um, I don't know how you built something that big. Years and years later, um I worked on a project that I came up with in my own idea, and I think I know how they made something like that, or whoever. Um, we're going to sidetrack here for just a minute. Uh, on Skylab, 1975, uh, they melted some metal, and they in- introduced it into a vacuum, or kind of a controlled area, uh, the metal was heated up by an induction furnace by the sun from outside. So I believe it was aluminum, and it melts very quickly. I think it's 1,350 degrees Fahrenheit, aluminum melts. Um, anyway, in this experiment in 1975 on Skylab, they melted the metal. Now the metal is floating, and it's hot. You don't want that in your underwear. It's not going to be, it's not going to be yabby. How do you shape or hold metal in a weightless environment? Molten metal. How do you, how do you handle molten metal in a weightless environment? It's like trying to nail jello to the wall or shovel smoke. We were faced with something at the first time called containerless processing. So the astronauts said, what if that thing floats over to the wall and burns a hole in the spacecraft and we decompress looking like Linguini going out the damn side? <laughs> they were not happy with Houston at all. And they said, did you guys not think through this? So we told them, they told them, well, don't, don't move around too much and cause, you know, air currents. 
and let it cool down. And um, so one of the guys plugs in a cassette tape to listen to some music. And he was listening to The Wall by Pink Floyd. And the sound waves started moving the metal everywhere. I went, really? So I had a device that I built. And what, on a six-speaker box, you could introduce molten metal in a weightless environment. And by using devices like, um, don't want to go too proprietary, but something like a keyboard mood synthesizer, you could do some things that's very cool. You could take a bar scanner, scan, let's say, something like your hand, feed it into this device I had that I built, and I can change any shape in the geometric universe to a corresponding sound. And so you play like the sound. Yeah, you play the sound, and the big lump that's laying in the speaker grid will turn to an exact clone copy of your hand. And I went, wow, we've got microgravity metal processing. And then it's what happens internally that's really cool. I had all the experts tell me. Your metal will be worthless. It'll be manufactured in a weightless environment. It'll come back to Earth in a 1G gravity field. It'll probably be rigid and break like glass. I said, I don't think so. I think it's just the opposite. If you look at metal that's been manufactured here on Earth and look at it on an atomic level, all of the, all of the atoms are just chaos because the gravity convection curves of the planet affects the metal when it's hardening. You can't get away from it on Earth. But in space, I figured out another way. By having a vibrato wave running on a constant tone, you can put the molecular structure of the metal internally exactly where you want it. In this case, I made a honeycomb, one of the most strongest load-bearing designs in Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. My metal came back, it was no thicker than your thumbnail, but in a sheer test, it's got a thousand times the strength of titanium. Weighs less than styrofoam, and it's crystal clear. You can see right through it. Trans steel. How about that? And um, that's I got that idea when I saw this at Area 51. Because I was trying to figure out how do you manufacture something so big without any nuts, screws, bolts, rivets, well seams, nothing. You do it like that. Like I made that piece of metal. So, uh, you, know, you keep talking and, and all the source that of information that you're getting in your dreams, but then you see this in honeycombs, you see them in certain places around the world, in Ireland, coming from the floor, these honeycomb pieces of silicone or silica, and this is the Fibonacci sequence all over the place. Yeah, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm not, I think I'm just using normal, natural things and, you know, here on Earth, terrestrial made, but... Use an entirely different way. But anyway, um, that was a question I had for them, and they were annoyed. <laughs> then I asked them if I could climb up on the stage and put my hands on this thing. Well, the Air Force people, base personnel, didn't want that done, but Rudolph said, let him do it. And that's one time when Rudolph and I were more of a partnership-type situation. He's a scientist. So Dr. Rudolph was calling the shots. Absolutely. Absolutely. He um, he was in charge. And the base personnel didn't care for it too much. I mean, just, you can see there's animosity there. So anyway, uh, Rudolph wanted to see interaction. And that's when I got up on the stage, the base personnel asked me this, and I knew that's when we got, we're going to have problems here. They said... The people that built this thing aren't around. <laughs> the, you know, said, you're on summer vacation. It's June. And I said, they went on vacation. I said, okay. <laughs> uh, we want to know if you could help us understand how this thing runs. Well, wait a minute. What about the people in it? They went on vacation? I said, did they leave any notes? Can I look at? I said, well, you know, you have homework in school. They had to take their notes for homework. And I'm going, well, oh, please give me a break. And, um, so I'm like, okay. So they're treating uh, you like a child in that regard. Well, think about it. It's 1971. How did adults talk to 17-year-olds? <laughs> right. You know, just 
stay with reality here. You know, they're condescending. Exactly. Oh, I went, okay. So they went on vacation and took their homework with them. They said, can you tell us how this thing, um, initiates? And I'm sitting there going, they haven't got a clue. They're trying to figure all this stuff out. And I said, well, can you explain to me how this thing got constructed? I don't see a river, a screw, a bolt, nothing. And I said, oh, that's the, the people that, um, Went on vacation. Doesn't have to tell you that. <laughs> okay. So I turn around and I walk up to this thing. And the first thing I notice is my shadow on the hull of this thing. And what did I just say about the area? The, the no room? shadows. This thing's got my shadow. So I stick out my arms and I flap them like I'm going to fly. And guess what my shadow does? It's a fraction of a second behind me. So I'm going, oh, man, I'm looking around. There's no light fixtures. And I went, I move, and it's just a slight uh, split of a second behind me. And first thing I thought of, that this alloy is some kind of picking up radiation heat off my body. It's a heat-sensitive reaction alloy. They're thermal, yeah. Yeah, thermal alloy. I thought, God, that's really cool. Who the hell built that? So I come to find out later, that's not what it is. So I put the thing is ectoskeleton um, in in shape. Think of a giant hourglass, two octopuses having sex, built in an hourglass formation, all the tentacles and arms wrapped around each other, which is actually the magnetic uh, the magnets as they're spun and, um, how big with, in your opinion, height, size of a size of an 18 wheel semi. Okay. So, and it's, it's, I'm looking at it and then it's skeleton structures on the outside. So it's ectoskeleton. I think it's Sagoni Weaver. Um, yeah, I'm alien. You got HR Geiger. That's the guy who designed all of the alien movies. Swear to God, he must have seen something like this. Um, it has an ectoskeleton structure that looks like bones and vertebrates. But in the bone and vertebrates are these tubes and are cascading over the entire body of this thing. And if you stand back and look at it, the way the tubes are cascading, they look just like the neural network of a, of a brain. So... It's ectoskeleton with some kind of neural network fibers around it. So like a biocomputer, like organic? Yeah, this thing, yeah, that's that's what's so hard to describe. This thing is both. It is metallic in looks and is organic in looks. It's both. I can't even describe it. Best thing to say, it's alien. Did you touch it? I don't it? know how it. That's just, I've got nothing to compare it to. Did you touch uh, it? Yeah. That's, that's, that's where it gets interesting. Uh, it's cool in a room, right? Well, when I touch it, it's warm. About body temperature. And I'm going, I'm looking around, there's no wires plugged to or anything. I thought, how can this thing be this warm in this cool of a room? And it's supposed to be metallic. And I went, it's generating its own heat. <laughs> that means it's organic or it's right. got some kind of power source. What is up with this thing? So um, I get put my hands on it, and you have to feel. Well, I forgot to tell you, there's neurofibers. There's a liquid running through them, and the liquid looks like most people don't get it when I tell them. The older people do. Uh, it looks like methylate. Remember the color of methylate? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what looked like was running through these tubes. And it's, it's, it's an iridescent color and it looks like it could light up good. I don't, I don't know it, but you could clearly see it and it was just slightly illuminating, uh, about the same intensity as a lightning bug. And I thought it was really kind of an orangey reddish. Yes. A methylate. 
Yeah. So, and that's in the tubes, and it's running all over his body, and I have no idea what that is. So I put my hands on it, and it feels... I went to... Um, I'd been to um, Ocean World, and... Um, or whatever, where they have dolphins you can pet. And this thing feels not like metal, feels like feels like a dolphin uh, skin or, or something. And then I noticed there's a reaction on the touch point where I'm at. I thought, what was that? So I saw a light. So I laid my hands, I laid my hand flat on it. And it, it like I said, it's a little warm. And then all around my hand was this, these color waves started emitting from my hand going down and fading out as it goes down away from my hand. But it's like, you, you know the thing they have for executives that are stressed out and they got this thing called the motion wave, you know, where it's blue and white and it rocks back and forth? Yes. Well, that's how the light was moving. It was like an ocean wave and it was about the same color, blue and white. It was just cascading away from wherever I was touching it. And I thought, man, that is so cool. So I crawl on up this thing, and I get up to on top of it. And the top, in the center of it, looks like a, a like vertebrates, like a spinal column. And I'm stepping over the vertebrates as I'm walking along it, and I'm heading toward the center of it. Now, up at the center on the side that was facing out is this big hole that's been, you know, blown in its side or whatever. And um, so I get up to that hole. I was going to ask you if there was any damage, because obviously if this thing came from somewhere else, crashed, how was it retrieved? Did you see any damage aside from that hole? Other than that hole, no, uh, because down on the bottom and up at the top on both ends uh, were these, um, it looked like the a ball of a ball and socket of a joint. These big ball sockets were uh, four of them on each end. Mm-hmm. And that looks like where this thing was plugged into a uh, spacecraft or whatever device. And what this thing is, this thing is a power plant. That's why I was, they probably brought me there. Because this is a fusion containment power plant. And it was probably plugged the way the fittings looked and the structure of it. It just looked like an engine that you take. So you out. think you think this is a part of perhaps a spacecraft, and this is the part they showed you. But this, I was thinking, maybe this is a spacecraft. But could it be a part from a spacecraft? The power source? It's the power source of a spacecraft. Uh, I'm, I, I'm dead certain of that. Um, also, in proportion to the size of it and the size of the craft. That craft has got to be enormous. It's, I mean, it's not what people describe in UFOs, you know, 100-foot diameter. No, this thing is powering something really big, like a size of a destroyer. Mm-hmm. It's big, whatever it came out of. And it was, you could, it was designed where it could be plugged in and plugged out, which really is a great design because imagine a spacecraft lands somewhere. They could disengage the engine and now they got a power plant to run their facility. Exactly. Yeah. Really smart. But there's more. This thing it, <laughs> I don't know, it's a kiss. If I had never seen an alien, okay? Never seen an alien. I've never even seen a UFO. I, can, I won't tell you I've seen something I hadn't seen. But I will tell you what I've, what I've seen and what I think it is. So, don't ask me if I've seen an alien. No, I've never seen an alien, never seen a a spacecraft. But I've seen a a power plant that I know did not come from us. And that's where the argument started. I'm standing over top of the the big hole, and I turn around and talk to them down at the floor, the base personnel, Rudolph, they're all standing down and looking up. I go, you know, guys, um, let me just, let's just get to the point of things here. This is some kind of power plant device. It drives some kind of spacecraft. Where is the spacecraft? And if it's got a spacecraft, it's got a crew. Where's the crew? Did you pickle them? Oh, man, did that set them off? And then I told him, I said, 
if you pickle the crew, you know, let's just say it's not from the neighborhood. It's not ours. It's not theirs, the Soviet. It's not from our neighborhood. It's from somewhere else. Who said that? Rudolph? I did to them. You did. Yes. And now they're getting, they're really getting mad. So they just tell me enough, shut up and get down off the thing. That's real abrupt. So did now you see inside? Of, did you see inside the hole? Uh, actually, I did. I got to the edge of it. it was, the hole is big enough where you can just you can just slide down in it, and you can slide. You're not going to get cut on the edges. It's like I said. It's like like blubber. You know, it's just a big hole blown in the side of this thing. And by the way, it was shaped. It looked like it blew from the inside out, which makes sense because right where the hole is is where the matter fields cross each other in the figure eight pattern. And if you have a fail-safe system, that's where it's going to shut down first. And if you're going to really have a detonation problem, it's going to be right there. And that's, that can made, that made me kind of happy. I felt sorry for the machine, but I went, damn, my, that's exactly where I would expect a breakdown to occur in the fusion containment. It would be right here. I call it the eye of the hurricane because it's where the two figure eights cross. And that's where your problem would be, and that's where this thing's problem was. What did you see and, inside? Um, it well, it, that that blast area. It, so the only thing I can figure is that this thing suffered some horrendous uh, external power surge of some kind. It called the field to break down, and now the failsafe system is going to kick in, and all of this is moving in a picosecond, a trillionth of a second, because if it doesn't. The hull, this engine's going to be facing 50 million degrees centigrade, or maybe in this thing's case, much higher. So it's going to disintegrate everything. But it shut down just in the way mine would if it had failed the way I designed it. And this one followed the same exact protocol. So um, that's at least what I'm theorizing. I just I don't know. But you can't so, describe what you saw inside. Was it dark through the hole? Uh, no, you could see. Uh, you could, it was there was a luminous light inside, like um, glowing like a lightning bug, blue inside. Um, so at that point, um, that's when they tell me get off the thing. And actually, I begged them, you know, let me look inside this thing. <laughs> right. Uh, well, it just had to because mine was in my head um, when I was machining parts and putting it together. I mean, they all fit in your hand. Hell, I could walk through this engine, walk through it. You know, of course you want to see it. So I get down in the side of this thing, and there's some really interesting stuff in there. And the way it's shaped, there are two pods. Um and some other round nodules, it looked like, to me, it looked like a service bay. You know, and and I would think if it, and if I had a detonation going on in that field, it would vent out through a service area. And that's exactly what this thing did. Or if you're going to shoot something like that, the best place to hit it would be in the service port because that's where it would be the weakest. And it had all the earmarks of that. So anyway, I get down off this thing as I'm putting my slapping my hands on this thing, climbing down, and that's when something interesting happened. Everywhere my hand was touching it, it's not the white, blue, soft patterns. It looks like orange, red, reddish flames where I'm touching it, and I and it's everywhere, both hands. So I'm looking at it and trying to think about it, and as I think about it. It's coming down, I guess it's got whatever you want to term it. It rolls back over as I'm focusing on this, trying to figure out what is this thing doing. It goes back to, the, it's heading back to the blue-white state. And so that's when it hit me. It's like, this is not heat recognition alloy. This thing is alive. It is feeling me. It's interactive. You touch it to communicate. Because I was pissed off. When I was pissed off touching it, it's got the reddish-blue look. When I calmed down trying mm. to figure out what it was, it went back to blue, blue. and white. Right. This thing is a, it's an ascension entity. 
it's aware. It knows you're there. And I went, holy smokes, it's a symbiotic relationship device. So this power plant's hooked into a spacecraft. You have the crew. The crew, the power plant, and the craft are all symbiotic linked. Yeah. The most perfect way to travel is in a symbiotic relationship. But the question is, do you have to be one of the people that went on vacation in order for that to operate? Or could you, you think they may have brought you there in the hopes that maybe this guy's uh, DNA connected and maybe he can figure it out? I don't know what their thinking was. All I know is they realized I figured out too much too quick. Because when I run the scenario by, this is a power plant hooked to a spacecraft, where is it? It got a crew. What'd you do with them? Did you pick them? And they knew that this teenager knew too much. And so we get back down, and they just tell me to get back into the back of the, um, whatever the things were, the golf cart looking things. And, um, so we're right now. Now we're heading back to the surf. So we're going down this long bay. And they're talking, they're whispering. Now, it's very important little tidbit here that I'm sitting at the back looking out the back. When you're driving through and air's blowing through and it's blowing, as they're whispering, their sound waves, their whispering is being carried on the air and it's going right into my ears. I can hear what they're saying. And I'm just sitting there real quiet and listening. And they said, you got, they were, they were upset. How did he figure out so much so quick? And that's why we brought him here. Well, is he going to help us? And he said, besides, we got to get first strike design. And I'm sitting there going, what the hell is first strike? You know, I never heard of such a thing. So we get back up to the surface and I'm still thinking about that. And then I was, they were talking about speed and I thought, oh man. They're trying to make some kind of delivery weapon. And it must have to do with our nuclear war. Uh, Syndrome mad. Now, current events. Check it out. 19, June 1971. What's going on world events with America? We're up to our eyeballs in Vietnam. Right. General Westmoreland's getting his butt kicked every day on a battlefield. Um, the 68 tech offensive that's only about a year and a half ago two years ago at the time um general westmoreland asked for surgical nuclear strikes on hanoi the soviet union was feeding supplies down the ho chi minh trail is and that's why westmoreland was getting hurt so bad on the field with his men no, but this have- this is obvious, David, that that was a war of attrition. We could have won that war in a week if we wanted to. We had the technology. We just yeah. needed they to continue the... Exactly. They wouldn't let them use it. Westmoreland's wanting to go all the way to tactical nukes. And the Soviet Union says, you do that and we'll go to full-blown global thermonuclear war. And so both sides are staring at each other over this. You got... <laughs> Curtis LeMay on one side, and you've got the Soviet Union hard lines on the other side, and it's very dangerous. I mean, it's, it's as bad as the Cuban Missile Crisis. They just wouldn't tell the media, or the media just didn't tell us. So the point is, they're looking for a way to get around MAD and get a first strike. So here was a design that I saw laid out by LeMay. LeMay built the B-52, right? Did you know he also built the XB-70? You ever seen that thing? No. Type it in and look at it. There's only two of them built. One of them crashed. The last one, surviving one, is sitting in a special building for the public to see at wright Patterson Air Force Base. in the. Oh, Air it's Force. the one that looks like they conquered a little bit, right? Yeah, it's a giant delta wing. If, the, if you see a picture with people around it, it's gigantic. Yeah, it looks like the Conqueror. It has two, two wings in the front, too. It's so smaller wings on the sides. It's got six engines. It cruised. Listen to this. Built, designed in 1958. Built in the early 60s. Cruises at 85,000 feet at 2,000 miles an hour. Nothing today touches that. 
Nothing. We ain't got nothing. The B-1 would be left in the dust, and it wouldn't even get to the altitude. And this thing was ready to roll. What LeMay envisioned was to retire the B-52 fleet and replace them with the XB-70. I think the name is Valkyrie. So it was going to be replaced by the Valkyrie. Then what he wanted to do, cruising at 2,000 miles an hour, the thing opens up and goes at the Soviet Union. It's now going to pass self, uh, fail-safe. Now you're in the Soviet territory with moving at 2,000 miles an hour. The bomb bay opens up and out drops my rocket pistol with a ward head on it, and it, it activates its engine. It will be on its target so fast. The Soviets would look at their radar screens and see the streak, and they would ask, What's that? By the time they get to what, and there would be a blast, and they are gone. You win, mad. And I looked at this, and I asked Lemay, I said, well, that's all fine and dandy. But what about the Soviet subs? Oh, we estimate we lose about 30% of the population, but that's acceptable. Not if you're in the 30%, it's not. And so the whole thing was just madness. It's just, I was caught up in an absolute insane world with these people and my rock, my power plant is going to be a first strike weapon and if you burn the Soviet Union into nothing guess who you have to burn the same day China China yeah you're going to take out about one and a half to two billion people in a single day and my delivery system is going to do that and it's not even a delivery system it's just a power plant and that was one half of phase one. They stopped me. I said, why are we stopping? Let me get the field contained and we got a power plant. And So you wanted to put this power plant inside the XB-70? No, they wanted, no, they wanted to own my rocket, the rocket engine. I see. With this power, they put warheads on the rocket. My engine's back there and it's going to drive those warheads so fast in the Soviet Union, you win first strike. But that would be only one machine. Did they have other, quote-unquote, power plants somewhere else that they could use? Because they use one rocket, that's it. That's it. Well, that's it. That's all they wanted. Oh, so they wanted basically almost like an extension-level event with one rocket. Yeah. Actually, they would, have been, they would have probably made half a dozen or a dozen of them and take out all the strategic places in the Soviet Union and China, and they own the world. Right, but this power plant, how would they use it? several times but with not, rockets. The problem, they would not use it as a power plant. They didn't need for me to close the field. Four and a half seconds gave you a, a vehicle with such speed that you could, you're already coming in at 2,000 miles an hour with this new bomber called the Valkyrie. You drop my rocket engine out of its belly, it fires. It I see. It'll be target so fast, they can't even get up out of their chairs to open the damn doors on the silos. They'll be gone. And so in four and a half seconds, how much speed would that thing need before it detonates? At under, under three and a half seconds, that thing could go from zero to Mach 30. Wow. There's nothing could touch it. You'd barely see it on radar. It'd just be so fast. The thing was not built to be used in the Earth's atmosphere. If you're going to use it for transportation mode... That's the other, there are four phases. The other three, uh, the other three and a half phases, you wouldn't believe what this power system can do. It's multi-dimensional. It's not just feeding power to a city because when I was working on the math, I saw two other, when I was working on the math, I saw two other things I weren't not expecting. The two things that showed up in the math, See, when you do this kind of math, you get into it. If you're lucky enough and you got enough brain cells to hang with it, it takes you on roads. It takes you where it wants to go. You don't drive it. It drives you. So I found two things along the way. And the first thing that showed up was an obvious one. If you have these containment cells, then you have the ability to make multidimensional force fields. So the whole world of force fields comes into play. Imagine where would that be handy. God, there's a million things you could use it for. And then the kicker. 
Like what? Like defense? Like Star Wars? Oh, well, force fields, you could you put them around. You wouldn't need windows. You'd have force fields That's in right. your windows. Yeah. You know, just you of millions of uses. But then the second thing that showed up, and I went, oh, you got to be kidding. I saw mathematically inertia dampener showing up. You know what inertia dampener is? An inertia dampener, best way to describe it is young people don't get it, but um, people our age do. When we were watching Bugs Bunny and all his friends got on this plane and they started crashing back to Earth and it's coming in so fast, speedometers are you know, running off the off the gauge and uh, the, the wings rip off and it's just like a dart and you're all screaming to no end and they're all going to die. Then right before they hit the ground, Bugs opens up the door and they all step outside and the plane crashes into the ground. And they're fine. Now, that's a cartoon. Yeah, but it's also a realistic example of an inertia dampener. What happens is the inertia dampener uses a, um, it's a force field. And this force field will, some people refer to, it's like anti-gravity, but it's not. See, the theory with gravity is, and the problem with it, you can slide a piece of lead between you and x-rays and block the x-rays. Why can't you slide something between you and block gravity? It's locked. That's matrix. It should follow, but it doesn't. That's why it's anti-gravity is such a butt kicker. Nobody can even start the math on it. But in inertia dampener, what it will do is that the reason it showed up in my engine is because of the feels the magnetic containment fields. Now, you set a secondary set of fields outside the spacecraft, and the engines are running. And then you're going to pull something off, which Einstein asked a riddle. Can somebody solve this riddle? How do you go millions of times faster than the speed of light without breaking the speed of light? You know, that's a real riddle. How can you go millions of times faster than the speed of light, traveling linear distance? But you don't break the speed of light. Well, I figured it out. It was an inertia dampener. And it works like this. Your engine's running, so the containment fields are up. Then you set your echo fields outside the spacecraft. And what it does, in visual, if you could see it, it would look like a stack of donuts. And your spacecraft is sitting in the hole. Then what the thing does... You pick a point in destination of space, and the secondary fields start pulling space, which is like a fabric, and it rolls it around the spacecraft like a burrito. Now, if you take, here's the best way if I was in front of you, I can physically show you, but I take a piece of paper, and I want to get across this paper, so the this, this quickest way is a straight line in a linear process. That's the fastest way. No, my way is faster. What you do, you take the paper and you wrap it around to a tube, squash it flat, and then on a linear distance, you fly the edge of the width. And what you're doing, you're trans-dimensional jumping. It's trans-dimensional jump drive. And then when you're traveling about half light speed. So you avoid all the problems about an object will become heavier and heavier that gets the speed of light. I don't have to fool with that. So you shut the secondary waves off, and your spacecraft, the paper rolls out, and you went clear across that page, which might be the distance between here and Andromeda, 200 million light years at 186,000. So, so you're basically, you're piercing a hole through space and appearing there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how you get there. Going millions of times faster then the speed of light without breaking the speed of light, and you have trans-dimensional warp drive, jump drive. And that's, and here's the second thing I can explain. You got a UFO coming in, the disk, whatever, whatever them things are. We've seen them come across on radars 5,000 miles an hour and does a 90-degree turn. Well, good God, if there's anything organic inside there, the gravitational forces would turn it into a liquid. Pizza, yeah. All right. Now, they're using a trans-dimensional warp drive with inertia dampener. In other words, 
they can come into a gravity field. There's a field outside the craft. There's a field inside the craft. And then another field inside the area where the occupants are standing. But when they do that 5,000-mile-an-hour turn, they feel nothing. Inertia force is dampened. So it's not even a cushion. It's basically you don't feel anything. They feel nothing. And you could be chasing them at 5,000 miles an hour, and they do a 90-degree turn on you and gone. How the hell do they do that? Did not get hurt. They can stop on a dime. Yeah. That's the other thing. You could come, I could come roaring at you at, you know, 70, 80,000 miles a second. Half stop on my feet. And fly right into you and stop right before I hit you, and we feel nothing. Yeah. Now, that inertia dampener could be applied to an automobile. So you lose, blow a front tire, your family's with you. You crash into a bridge. Car is mangled on the front. You step out like Bugs Bunny, and you don't have a scratch on you because you're not involved with the kinetic energy momentum impact. You're not involved in that. So what do you need to have this around you, almost like a plasma field? Yeah, it's, it has to be laid out. It's going to have to be laid out in a way of a plasma field. But there's so many questions I just don't have answers to. I'm just not that smart. I'll give you two, two right off the bat. <laughs> uh, uh, tell me, how do you navigate and how do you communicate? You're outrunning your own damn headlights. That <laughs> speed of light. How do you do that? I haven't got a clue. I'm just not smart enough. I'll tell you that. Just I don't know. I have no idea how to. You know, they don't address that in Star Trek. Is that um, the movie Interstellar? Did you ever see that? Oh yeah, absolutely. That thing is perfect. Dead on. That's exact. Traveling light speed sucks. You're at some planet, and every five minutes you're there, twenty five years passes on Earth. Right. So when you get back home, everybody's dead, you know, because of old age. How do you get around that problem? Star Trek don't seem to have that problem at all. They don't even address it. You know, there they're running at warp nine, chasing you, trying to get away from uh, Q. Well, everybody they've known has died of old age. So Star Trek completely blows over that, and it's just a major problem. It's impossible. As we understand physics right now, it's impossible, but maybe there is a way to do that. I just don't know what it is. Why, why were you, the, well, first of all, why do you think that you were taken to Area 51 with oh. Rudolph? And what was the reason? Well, I think what they wanted to, this thing was damaged. I got in an argument with them and I asked them, did this thing crash on its own? Did you shoot it down? Did you dig it up when you were building this big damn thing underground here and you found it? <laughs> oh, How question. old is it? Where does it come from? Who built it? I mean, I could go for the next hour. and the, But their faces, I could tell, they didn't have a clue. So I don't think they captured it. I think they either found it or just crashed on its own. But whatever it went through, it had to be pretty, pretty damn horrific because that damage in that thing, it had to be an enormous power source which I'm just assuming that it was in a spacecraft. It took a hit that, you know, maybe it was in a war battle. I don't know. You know, maybe um, Independence Day people got at it. And I don't know. There's just so much I don't know. But um, How true. When you watch Independence Day, I don't know if you've watched the latest one, but I'm sure you watched the original one. How true is what they showed us, or the X-Files, the recent one, about what Area 51 is like how true is it um the first one um that was pretty damn accurate cause i noticed the doorknobs door handles and um some of the features uh just things that's in the background people wouldn't pay attention to they were dead on somebody talked <laughs> i don't know if they, whatever happened to them but somebody because I saw some very similar, almost identical features in there. So I don't know. Um, what a great way to get the truth out. You do it in a movie form. Science fiction, exactly. Yeah. Nobody will hold you liable for it, and you get educated and enlightened by it anyhow. And then nobody will believe it eventually, because if you say that story to me, I'll say, oh, come on now. David, you've been watching too much uh, Independence Day. You know, Gene Roddenberry once said to me, um, 
He said, when we meet real encounters, first contacts and stuff, he said, I just know the alien life form is going to look very similar to Star Trek characters. And you know what? I had to agree. It probably will be. Or either it's going to go so the opposite way, they're going to show up and they're going to be so far different, we can't even compare them to nothing. I couldn't even imagine what a silicon life base form would look like. Work so hard. how long were you? How long were you there in Era Fifty One? Well, it got worse when we went upstairs. Um, Rudolph was really ticked off at me because I actually learned more than he learned from me. In other words, it wasn't an even exchange. I I I won. <laughs> I learned a lot more. Uh, by being brought there, and he didn't get anything out of me. And I wasn't going to give him anything. Um, but what my problem was is uh, Pistolum's laying out there in the desert. That's the name of my uh, rocket. So um, um, i got to do something about that. Now, what they don't know that was occurring is that right before they took me from White Sands, Rudolph wanted me to talk to my parents, and I went, perfect, because what Rudolph didn't know, I talked to my dad before I ever left the house and told him, I'm going to go to White Sands, but I could end up God knows where, but if I call you and tell you to light your pipe, he always smoked a Dr. Garbo pipe, I said, if I tell you to light your pipe and sit back and enjoy the show, I want you to burn the lab to the ground, and he did, so there went all the math all the writings, all the backup logs, the models, the prototypes, everything was just gone. Literally burned so, to the uh, ground. Yep. So when they showed up, all that was left was just one drunk guy in the backyard, a uh, fire trucks putting out a fire, and the black SUVs pulled up and went, what happened? And Dad wouldn't tell him a thing. So that's all gone. Now, the only thing left is my prototype. So I'm sitting there figuring out how do you take out your prototype in a top-secret Air Force base. So I'm standing by the hangar door, and I look down at the wheel, and I went, oh, yeah, that'll do. So I, I bend down like I'm tying my shoe, and I reach into the hub of the wheel and pull out a big wad of graphic car um graphic grease graphite so i didn't start making a ruckus about seeing my rocket you're gonna take it from me i just I, 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 I. rudolph said take him out there to see the rocket and let him to look at it make sure it's okay before we pick it up so we rode out there on one of the golf carts things with two carts and i get out and i open the uh, side of it and i reach into the um, induction chambers where we put the the P-size fuels in, and I put the graphite wad in there and closed it and turned on the cyclotron. And that's what happens when graphite meets deuterium and another element that I had in there. It is a horrendous chain reaction. And I turned around to the guard and said, we got to go. This thing's going to detonate. I said, it's leaking. He's a guard. Yeah, God, you know, jump on. So I jumped on the golf cart. We took off and we're we're heading back to the hangar. <laughs> That's a damn good question. I didn't think about. It. He said, "What's a safe distance?" And I went, "Oh God, Chicago." Because <laughs> <laughs> if it goes nuclear, it's going to take out the entire Groom Lake Basin. But. It didn't. It went conventional, and it blew it blew Pistolum into a million pieces. And um, we it goes off no sooner than we get to the hangar. Rudolph standing there, he runs over and asks, "What happened?" And the guard said, "He said it was leaking." Now Rudolph is intelligent. I mean, don't underestimate this guy. He knows there's no such thing as a leak. And he's looking at me. He's looking up and down. And he grabs my hand. And he looks at the inside of it. He he rubs his hand over it. He feels it. He smells it. Then he turns around and looks at the hangar door. How fast is that? He's done. Put it together. 
And he looked, turned around and looked at me and he said, very clever. And um, then he backhands me. He hits me so hard, my, some of my teeth come through my lower lip. And I'm on the ground and I'm, <laughs> I am spitting blood. And I hear all these guns cocked, and I thought, well, shit, you know. <laughs> so he literally up. hit you. He literally hit you. Yeah, yeah he just, well, this man's killed a thousand, a hundred thousand people. What do you think he's going to do? Lucky he stopped at that moment, but he really hit me really hard. So I'm laying on the ground at all the guards' feet, and I'm spitting blood. And um hear all the guns cocked, and I thought, oh, man. I look up. Guess where all the gun barrels are pointing? At Not him? at me. At Rudolph. Really? Think about it. It's 1971. World War II ended in 1945. 45, 55, 65, 70. Guess what? All of those soldiers' fathers fought that asshole and his little friends. I see. And you know what? They didn't like the fact this German is running over everybody. They know he is a Gestapo colonel, and he just hit this 17-year-old kid in the mouth. He's now spitting blood everywhere from Midwest Ohio. What do you think they feel like? They're going to blow a hole through him. Don't mess with one of mine. Don't don't mess with one of our kids. Yeah, that's just it. You could see it on their faces. And there was a guy I remember, Sergeant Loki. He... um, he was picking me up, and he said, you will not hit this kid again. And I I know for sure if he tried, they would have shot him, whether in charge or not. Because they, <laughs> Loki, Sergeant Loki said, uh, we are through taking orders from you. So it's real personal at this moment. And I thought, very, it's a very human story. So um, he had me, uh, they took me to this room and put me in there, and there was no windows, only one door, and a light bulb hanging from a wire, and that's it. And boy, my mouth hurt. <laughs> it really hurt. It this is up. above ground already? Yeah, we're already above ground. They walked me through. Um, we went past some offices in this building that was just off to the right of the hangars. I guess it was a containment room or something but i it's just a concrete floor with a drain in the center i was sitting on the floor and i was just then rudolph told me something on the way to the containment room and this is scary (laughs) i know he was not bluffing he said i'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen now you're gonna be a permanent guest here for the rest of your life i have found a body that's the same age we're gonna change the dental records and we're going to burn it into a cinder, and we're going to send it back to your parents and tell them there was a mishap at the pad at White Sands, and you died, and you were burned. And no one will ever know you're gone, and you'll be here forever. Yeah. And I thought, man, God, and he is not kidding. So I'm looking at that wire in the bulb, and I thought, I wonder if I can get up there and electrocute myself because the shop's burnt and gone. Pistons blown a million pieces. The only thing left is my brain, and he's coming after that next. I wonder how many times this happens in history. I mean, even recently, there's a Netflix series called Stranger Things, and that's one of the plots, exactly what you just said. They they took a kid, and they disappeared him, and that's exactly the same plot. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I started crying then because I knew I was screwed. I just My parents will never figure it out. Nobody be coming after me, and I'm going <laughs> to... I would eventually end up like Brent Sprinter in the original uh, or in uh, Independence Day with the long white hair. We don't get out much here, Mr. President. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I, when I saw that in the movie, I busted out laughing and I stopped laughing thinking, that ain't funny. I was there. I could have. That could have been me. So when he told but, you uh, that, then you thought he was going to be true. And then what happened? Well, I just laid there what felt like two days, but it actually was only about 12 hours. Go back to White Sands. Colonel Williams was house arrest, right? Colonel Williams is a blue beret of uh, special forces. He overtakes his two two uh, guards, gets on a phone 
and calls straight to Wright Patterson to General LeMay. And he told him what happened. And grabbed me, the rocket, and we're off to Area 51. So while we were doing all the stuff at Area 51, they're showing me the engine and, you know, arguing, hits me in the mouth, puts me in this room. While that's going on, guess who is on his way to Area 51? General LeMay. Do you know, you might not know this, but Area 51 is under the jurisdiction of Strategic Air Command. Stratcom. And who designed SAC? Who put all the commanding officers at those bases? General LeMay, personally. So he shows up in his saber liner, which looks like a um, little bit fatter version of a Learjet. And... I hear all this noise outside in the hallway, and I hear cussing and screaming. Door flies open, and there's a silhouette of a stogie sticking out of the side of this guy's face. <laughs> and I went, that's big and wide like John Wayne. I went, oh, damn, that's Curtis. And he's got this other full colonel by a tie wrapped around his his fist, and he's dragging the guy around like a, like a dog on a leash. And that's the commander of the base of Area 51. And he looked, took one look at me. He turned around to the commander of the base. He said, had nothing to do with that. Rudolph hit him. And LeMay said, where is Rudolph? He left about 10 minutes before you got here on that jet. And he said, get this kid cleaned up and put him on my jet right now. And, um, and they did. So we're riding back home. And he tells me, I'm so sorry all this went this way. It kind of got out of control on you. Um, I'm going to uh, burn the trail behind us. You won't be able to probably find anything. But he did miss some things. I found them. But um, I said, why'd you come and get me? He goes, you're the same age of of some relatives of mine. And I just mm. could see you stay in there. Uh, I knew what was going to happen if Rudolph would, and I just couldn't leave you there because you really worked really hard for me. And I thought, damn. <laughs> Whatever happened to Rudolph, and why did he hit you? Ego? He hit me because I blew up Pithlum. He wanted that. He needed he needed Pithlum to back-engineer the thing downstairs because both of them were electromagnetic fusion containment engines, one of them's busted downstairs. The other one laying up here on the desert floor is in perfect condition, and you can figure out what's going on with it. Mm-hmm. And that's I and I just took that away from him. So, and he also got word that the lab was burnt. So he knew what I was doing. I was a step ahead. I was just shutting everything down. So, whatever uh, happened story. to Rudolph? What happened to Rudolph eventually? Rudolph. Story continues. Um, it's <laughs> far from over with. LeMay was right. He said on the jet, he says, we're going to go home. And we're going to land, and we'll have the car take you back to your parents' house. And that's exactly what happened. And he told me, they're not through with you, David. I'm going to try to protect you best I can, burn the paper trails and stuff. Uh, but Rudolph, I'm afraid he's going to still be coming. And he said, the best thing you can do right now is never build another rocket your entire life. Don't even care if it's a model kit off of a shelf. Don't ever get back into the business because it's never going to work out for you. And that's why people have uh, credibility things with me when they said, we can't find your work anywhere. It's because it didn't work anymore in those areas. And I never got to go to college like I wanted to. I finally got to college when I was 40. Um, it just, all this just threw my life out of sequence, something terrible. I lost my first wife and my two kids. Uh, I don't, don't even know them. Um, think the story's made up. There's a real collateral damage there. Real people, real lives. I told George Newry that and he went, wow, that's a different take. I just wanted to jump on him and say, take? That's all you can say? My life was just utterly upended. I wanted to go. 
I had a full scholarship to Ohio State University in theoretical astrophysics. I wanted to be a professor. Instead, the next thing I'm about to tell you is what happened. So I, I listened to LeMay, went home, went back, <laughs> went in the fall back into my senior year in high school. That's how I spent my my, my junior year uh, vacation, summer vacation. <laughs> they even how do you, uh, how, how did you reconcile this once you got to uh, senior year? Looking around at the at the uh, you know a normal regular kid life when you went through that in the summer. Yeah, then you know I, they gave us an assignment. Write what you did in the summer, and people going. <laughs> oh, I worked at Pizza Hut. Oh, I, I was going to say at hardware store. What am I, I went I to the beach. Exactly, I yeah. went to the beach. I worked at a part time at a grocery store, but I went to Area Fifty One. How did, how did you say it? Yeah. No, I built. It's like Strong Thurman said to me in a debriefing. He said, which of the most, each thing is unbelievable. Which of the unbelievable do we believe first? You know, first you build a, a, a damn engine that doesn't even exist beyond anybody's capabilities. Then you end up at Area 51 seeing an alien engine, you know, and then the next thing that happens. It's just like, which one do we believe? I said, I know. So went back to school. Quiet in the winter, quiet in the spring, graduating. So I'm graduating, in line, going to go to Ohio State. And I reached, we're shaking hands with the parents. I turn and I'm shaking his hand and it's cold as ice, man, and it's hot. It's like 90 degrees in, in June. And um, it's June 10th, 1972. So I turn to shake this hand, it's cold, and it's two guys, black suits, Mirror sunglasses. What is it with that? <laughs> and the skinny black tie. And he just gives this awful looking smile. And he slaps this letter in my hand. I step back out of the line. I open it up. And you know what it says? Greetings. <laughs> I just got drafted. It's 1972. The draft didn't shut yeah, down no. to 1975. Yeah. They grabbed me, both arms, throw me in this... Uh, station wagon. My parents are raising heck, and they tell them uh, he is picked up by legal conscription. Go look that up. So I'm kidnapped for the second time. <laughs> and LeMay was right. They're not through. They take me down to Port Columbus, get out over at MAC Military Air Transport, and these guys with his black suits, mirror sunglasses, they are CIA. And I found out when I got out of the car because the Air Force personnel are there and Sergeant Loki's there. And Loki says, you ain't taking this guy anywhere. He is going back to Wright Patterson to General LeMay. Thank you for listening to the first part of Chapter 2 of The Life and Technology of David Adair. Now... Let's go to the member section where you can listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy.